I have just finished reading a book called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Voss spent 14 years as part of the New York City Joint Terrorism Task Force. He was an FBI hostage negotiator who had worked on more than 150 international hostage cases. His book details, in his words, how to talk anyone into or out of just about anything. Now, before reading, I had seen my fair share of Hollywood movies, and I was pretty sure I knew the advice Chris would give. I expected him to write about how making aggressive demands can work, about how seizing power in a negotiation is key to success, about how being direct, data-driven, and diligent is vital for negotiations. But I was completely wrong. To my amazement, this veteran FBI negotiator advocated for a much, much softer approach. He said, to win at negotiations, you don't force the partner into your way of thinking. No, you simply listen to the partner. You ask them calibrated questions. You don't say no directly. You don't give ultimatums. You make the partner feel heard. You mirror their language and body language, and you make them feel comfortable. Basically, you don't force a negotiation through a power, you collaborate and help your partner come to an agreement that suits you both. In a sense, the key is to give your partner autonomy, control and security to help them suggest an offer that's good enough for you. Today, my guest explains the psychology behind why this works and how all of us can use it. All of that coming up after this quick break. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Nudge. I'm your host, Phil Agnew. Telling someone what to do won't work. That's what today's guest, Brie Williams, is here to share. Here's Brie introducing herself. I'm Brie Williams, the behaviour changer, and I am the founder of People Patterns, a behavioural consultancy in Melbourne, Australia. Bree, like Chris Voss, reckons that telling someone directly to do something is destined to backfire. She had this epiphany, not while reading, like me, but while sculpturing stone. I do a bit of stone sculpture, and so I have these big slabs of rock, and I was noticing one day that if I tried to bash the centre of the rock, nothing would happen. So the mallet and the chisel would just bounce off. And this is very similar to behaviour. If we try and tackle people front on, oftentimes we get what is known as reactance. In other words, don't tell me what to do. And this is really people trying to reassert their autonomy, really reasserting themselves as a decision maker. And if we go too far and are too directive, we're likely to encounter reactance. Regardless of what Hollywood movies show us, demanding someone to do something is very unlikely to work. We are creatures of autonomy and we need to feel in control. Chris Voss describes this bluntly, stating that the desire for autonomy is something that civilizations have fought and died for for centuries. 
which is why telling a teenager to study, an artist to hurry up, or a customer to buy is destined to fail. Bree has experience of this firsthand. So I was in the market for a compressor, of all things. Now, an air compressor to blow up tyres. And it's fair to say I know very little about this category. So I was visiting a shop and um, this salesperson, without asking me any questions about what I needed, went straight to the most expensive model and tried to sell me that version. And I reacted by saying I didn't want that model because he hadn't done the decent thing of understanding what I needed. So I felt as a consumer that he was just going for the most expensive because it would be more coin in his pocket. The salesperson may have thought they were being smart by anchoring Brie to an expensive model, but that only works if the customer feels a sense of control. By ignoring Bree's requirements, by failing to ask questions, the salesperson triggered reactants in Bree. This urge for reactants has been proven in one 2023 study called Don't Tell Me How Much to Tip. This is a great study. It's part of a series of six experiments, and the researchers found that adding a suggested tip amount on a restaurant bill, so saying, why don't you tip 20% or something like that, that backfired. Just like with Bree's salesperson, suggesting a tip without engaging customers triggered reactants. The researchers found that this suggested tip reduced ratings of the restaurant by 8% and it didn't even increase the amount of tips the restaurant received. Essentially, customers liked the restaurant less and they were less likely to return or recommend it when their bill had a suggested tip amount. So what could this restaurant have done differently? What could Bree's salesperson have done? I asked Bree. There's a couple of things we can do. Now, the principle here is that it always is best if it feels like it's their idea rather than our idea. Now, one way we can do that is saying something like, if you like me, Phil, you know that it's worth paying a little more to get something that will last. So in other words, I'm saying, if you're like me, Phil, so we're now together, we're sharing an idea rather than it's my idea that we you should spend more money. It's if you're like me, of course, people say, yes, of course, I'm like you. And now we have a shared idea of what the best outcome is going to be. And the other great way of overcoming reactants is to give people an escape valve so that you could say something like, feel free to say no, but here's what I was thinking. And just by saying feel free to say no gives them back their autonomy and it avoids reactants. Two solid tips here. By saying, if you're like me, you can emphasise similarity, which increases liking. And by saying, feel free to say no, you're increasing the recipient's feeling of autonomy. This was shown brilliantly in a fantastic study from the year 2000. Researchers, they waited at a bus stop and asked one group of people, sorry, would you have some coins to take the bus, please? So they were asking for some coins for the bus. This is back in 2000 before contactless cards. Anyway, that was one group. And then they asked another group of people, sorry, would you have some coins to take the bus, please? But you are free to accept or refuse. Now, asking someone bluntly for money in that first example, that only worked 10% of the time. But in the second example, when they said you are free to refuse, the compliance rate jumped from 10% to 48%. This is incredible and it shows that we don't like being told what to do. That would trigger reactants. So giving people that feeling of autonomy, that will actually encourage action. 
Turns out a similar tactic can be used for the suggested tips problem at restaurants, that study I referenced earlier. The researchers found that the drop in ratings doesn't occur when the message on the bill says that the suggested tip amounts are there for the customer's convenience. So by saying these suggested amounts are here simply to help you calculate the tip faster, it gave the tipper that feeling of autonomy and removed reactants. Bree summarises this nicely. I think it comes down to not being blatant in what you've assumed. And so as soon as people get a sense that you've assumed too much about me, then that's going to stir up my sense of confrontation. So you've assumed things that aren't true about me. And so now I'm going to go the opposite. I'm going to buy from your competitor as well. So what's the answer? We've got to take it very gently and infer that we respect their choices and their freedom to choose. So we should tell people that they are able to refuse. We should explain why we're suggesting or asking for something. We should showcase how we're similar to someone to increase that likability. But all of these feel like different tactics. I wanted a sort of model that I could repeatedly apply to avoid reactants when negotiating. Fortunately, Brie has a great model to use. It is called conversational cutlery. So conversational cutlery, the visual cue here is just a spoon, a knife and a fork. So think of those three pieces of flatware or cutlery. And think of that in terms of what your sales conversation is going to be, particularly if you're uncomfortable with sales conversation. This is how you might approach the process. So spoon is the first implement that you want to use in this conversation. Not literally, this is all very metaphorical, but the spoon part of the process is the start of your conversation with a potential customer. And this is really about validation and relaxation. So listening and reflecting to them. So what we're trying to do here is neutralize any fear they have of being sold to. Now, why a spoon? A couple of different reasons. A spoon is shaped sort of like an ear, and that is our reminder to listen. And also a spoon and if you, you can look at your own face in a spoon, can't you? It might be upside down and distorted, but it's all about reflection. Then we move into the knife portion of the conversational cutlery. The knife is where you cut to the core. So in the first spoon section, you've been doing a lot of listening. You've said, tell me more about that. Now we're moving to something a little bit more pointed, a little bit more cutting. So you could say something like, what I've seen in your industry and point out something that you feel might be a frustration for them. Because otherwise the conversation might start in this sort of, stay in this sort of drifty, everything's fine here state. This is where you as a salesperson can bring your authority into the conversation, say, look, this is what I've noticed and we're really cutting into the issue. And the third and final part of the conversation is the fork in the road. So this is when we're pulling out our fork and saying it's decision point time because often a sales conversation ends up just being a wafty sales conversation and it doesn't close in a decision. The fork is really putting to your potential customer, you've got a decision to make. There's a fork in the road here. You can either do nothing about this issue or you can do something. Now, doing something looks like this. And that's when you describe how you would work together. Start your conversation with the spoon, listen, reflect, look for validation, then move on to the knife, cut into the issue, give your authority, 
and then introduce the fork. Explain how the final decision is with your partner and let them choose. Three simple strategies to reduce reactants. Here's a great example of this in practice. This model was really prompted from a conversation I was having with one of my clients because he was having a challenge. He was having really good feedback in sales meetings, but when he went to follow them up, he wasn't getting any conversion. So once he left that room, he lost them. So what was going on? He wasn't putting the fork in the road to them in the meeting. So that's the vital step that a lot of people miss out on. They leave it hanging thinking they've done the hard work in the meeting and then they lose the sale because life gets in the way, you know, the hot state starts to become a cold state and you've lost your your customer. Telling someone to buy won't work. Suggesting the highest priced product with no justification will fail. Encouraging a high tip without stating why will backfire. And yet many of us fall into this trap, believing that demands trump soft talk. But it's not the only mistake we make. After the break, Brie will explain three other mistakes that most of us make when negotiating. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com slash service to do more for your customers today. Okay, welcome back to the show. Now, remember, Brie felt reactant when she was told to buy the most expensive air compressor. This is partly because she felt ignored and she felt like she wasn't listened to. But there's also another reason. Part of the reaction was triggered because she was only offered one choice. Here is why that's a problem. Getting the number of choices you put forward to a customer right is one of the biggest challenges marketers have because we either give them too many because we want to be generous and we don't want to miss any opportunity to work with them. So we give them too many because that they then get overwhelmed and can't work out which one's better than the other. Or we give them too few. We pretty much say it's the Model T Ford and it's in black and that's what we do. The challenge is when we only give them one option, we are more likely to get not only reactants but what is known as single option aversion, which means that people feel that they haven't done their due diligence and they need to keep researching. It changes then the decision from a customer perspective. When it's one, it's a yes or no binary decision. As soon as we've got two or three, it becomes a which one should I choose decision. They've forgotten almost that no is an option. Now, this won't be new information for many long-term listeners of Nudge. I've shared before a study by researcher Daniel Mokon. In his experiment, people were told to purchase a DVD player. 
In some cases, they were shown just a Sony DVD player. And in other cases, they were shown a Sony DVD player and a Philips DVD player. Mokon found that when the Sony DVD player was the sole option, only 9% of study participants said they would buy it. But when two options were presented, 32% of participants indicated they would buy the Sony product, which basically nearly quadrupled the purchase intent. So offering one choice, that doesn't seem like it will usually work. Two choices tends to be better because it gives the buyer the feeling of autonomy. However, two choices is not the only solution. Bree shared other factors that are worth considering. So the answer really lies in the field of choice architecture. So it's about how you table the options to someone. And there's a couple of techniques we can use. So the Goldilocks effect is when people tend to avoid the most expensive option and they tend to avoid the cheapest option and they fall somewhere in the middle. And we can dial this up with what is known as the center stage effect by designing the middle option in a table of options to really attract people's eye as well. So the Goldilocks effect really for marketers means that we should always be mindful that the product we want to sell the most of should usually fall in the middle of the pack. And so the decoy effect is another element that we need to consider here, which is our most expensive option, maybe one that we don't necessarily expect to sell, but its role is very much to anchor people to a higher value so they're going to be more likely to drift to that middle Goldilocks option. Bree's got a great example of this in practice. So examples that I often think about and share are things like shipping options. So particular retailers have different shipping options. So you can get it faster, but it's going to cost you more, um, more money. You can get it slower, but it's free, or there's usually a midpoint in between, which means that you'll get it pretty fast, but you might have to throw in a couple of bucks. And I think the other interesting thing, which um, I've done in separate work is what I call asymmetrical anchors, which is really about how far away your most expensive option and your least expensive option should be from that middle option. So if you want your middle option to be $100, you want your most expensive option to probably be around 40% more expensive than that, but you want your least expensive option to only be, say, 10 to 20% cheaper than your middle option. So this is what I call the asymmetrical anchors. Now, the way this works is the role of the cheapest option is to get people to jump up that just that tiny little bit more to the middle, which again plays into the Goldilocks effect, but you want your most expensive option to be a more significant jump because its role is anchoring the value of that middle option. Quick summary here. Offering one choice tends to backfire, but offering two choices isn't always ideal. Research suggests that three choices can be best because it causes the Goldilocks effect, encouraging us to pick that middle choice. And it also allows businesses to add in a decoy, a higher priced option designed not really to be sold, but to make the middle option look more appealing. Brie also suggests that the price difference between the middle and the most expensive option should be greater than the difference between the cheapest and the middle. So let me give an example. If you're selling small, medium and large popcorn, as an example, then they should be priced at $2 and then $4 and then double the difference between the first two. So the next one should be $8. So $2 for the smallest, $4 for the medium and then $8 for the largest. According to Brie, that makes most sense and it makes the most use of the Goldilocks effect and the anchoring effect. All right, 
let's sum up. Today we've covered something that is probably a little surprising. Telling someone to do something usually backfires, and that's down to reactance. Reactance is a tricky one only because we do it ourselves, so we react badly if someone tells us what to do. But we never think someone will react badly to us telling them what to do. And that's a result of us thinking that our logic and how we arrived at something is gold and it will be entirely convincing to people. So we just have to lay out the story and they're going to swallow that and absolutely do what we ask them to do. And behavioural science tells us, no, that's not how we need to do it. Rather than telling someone to do something, you have to follow the advice of Brie and FBI negotiator Chris Voss. Don't be so direct. Instead, give your negotiating partner autonomy and make sure they feel in control. Now, following the advice I've heard from Brie in this episode, I think it's unwise for me to tell you to go and pick up a copy of Brie's latest book, because let's face it, if I do tell you that, it'll probably backfire. So instead, here is Brie to tell you a little bit more about her book. Yeah, I'm excited to share with people the Williams Behaviour book. It's 50 Models to Influence Action, and it's a visual representation of behavioural science because I know not everyone absorbs information in the same way. So this is my attempt to bring a behavioural um, visual dimension to the science. If you would like to pick up a copy of the Williams Behaviour book, you can find a link to buy it in the show notes, but do feel free to ignore that. Now, I'd usually ask you at this point to sign up to my newsletter, but again, I don't want to tell you to do that. So instead, I thought I'd let you know that Brie and I have recorded a bonus episode, an episode where we discuss why your emails may be getting ignored and how to get around this. If you're interested in writing unignorable emails, then you'll want to tune into this bonus episode. To get access, simply click the link in the show notes for this show, enter your email address, and you'll be sent to that episode. That will subscribe you to the Nudge newsletter, but don't worry, you can unsubscribe immediately or at any time. Existing subscribers, you will already have access to this bonus episode. Just click the link in the PS of the email I sent announcing this episode. Okay, that is all, folks. I really hope you enjoyed this show. I'm Phil Agnew, and I'll be back next week for another episode of Nudge.